This is the third series in the third year indeed of the Laureateship of podcasts that I have made with some of my fellow writers in which I ask what the hell stroke heaven it is that we do. Not expecting or even needing an answer, but in not getting an answer, maybe some signpost directions towards an answer. I really hope you enjoy them. So today I'm talking to someone, a, a writer who I don't know, Oh, I can describe them as a supreme being of writing. I think that's what they are. And uh, this is, will be Emer McBride. Uh, I think this is my 18th and final podcast. So it's wonderful to talk to her at the end of it. Um, she is the author of A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, The Lesser Bohemians, most recently Strange Hotel, all published by Faber. And I think um, most people will agree that these are seminal and permanent works of the imagination. So as always, um, I feel a deep sense of uh, joyous privilege to talk to a fellow writer. And in this instance, the very great Emer McBride. Emer McBride, uh, thank you so much for doing this in the first instance. Oh, thank uh, you, it's my pleasure. Um, I do regard us all as belonging to the same vexed platoon, so it's very nice to meet a fellow soldier. Um, I was looking at your name uh, and thinking, you know, what an odd bundle of contradictions we are as a, as a creature, Irish people, I mean, because you are Emer, son of the servant of Bridget. And if we were native peoples, we probably wouldn't be very satisfied with the exactitude of that. Um, what uh, do you have a relationship? I mean, it's, this was one of the sorrows of my grandfather, who was a revolutionary person, and he thought, like the Israelis speaking Hebrew, we would be speaking Irish by now. Do you have a relationship to Irish of any sort, even if it's a broken-hearted one? I think, um, well, for one thing, McBride, for me, is Nigel of Rija, which is the daughter of the servant of St. Bridget. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, um, I think when I was a child, I had a very sentimental attitude towards it. Both of my parents were from the North, and so grew up without any Irish. And um, my father particularly was very keen that his children would learn to speak Irish and that this would be a big part of our heritage. Um, and of course, you know, growing up in, in Tarakari, we always did it at school, but it was kind of in the era before it was popular or before it was taught in the kind of accessible, child-friendly way that it is taught nowadays. And so Irish was always slightly vexed issue for me and that I wished that I could speak it well um but found it quite hard to, to sort of penetrate but you know even now that I, I live in England and have done intermittently for a, a very long time when I go back again I, I still listen to the new and and feel the kind of the heartstrings tug and wish that I had uh, made a bit more effort you know, when you have um, supreme writers in Irish, like Nuala um, Nigonal and, and, and Michael Hartland, who, who learned Irish from his grand-aunt, I think, and wrote that beautiful poem about her. Um, Anulu, I think, was born in London, actually, and went back to gather it up. I mean, my son, Toby, is the only I know of who who garnered Irish with ease. It was quite shocking, actually, in its own way. But as a as a writerly creature, what does it mean? Does it mean anything to us that? I mean, I know you can put a good gloss on it and say, well, Irish, by the accidents of history, became necessary in Ireland, especially after the famine. If you wanted to actually survive, you had to speak English. And we could, we've put a wonderful new dress on our, on English, haven't we? 
and, and we can say that and we have a whole wardrobe actually we have a whole mansion of wardrobes that we've dressed the language with but is there a sorrow there too are we disconnected in some way because of not having irish from other things that might have been important to us as writers very hard to say. I think for some people that does exist. For me, not really, because this is the language that I have known all mm. my life. But mm. at the same time, I feel that it is that although I, you know, speak English uh, as a native speaker, as a first language, that English is a completely hibernified English. And then that that language that that we speak as Irish people is very different and is very much our own. And although we share words, there are so many things about the way we understand how language functions that is completely different. It is completely unique to to the Irish and to people who grew up in Ireland. Um, and that Irish writers, it's a kind of it's a tool that they just possess from the mere fact that they live in a country where language is used in that way, that we have, you know, co-opted it and made it our own. And I don't, I don't feel, you know, sad about that at all. I think I really celebrate that. I find that is the most exciting thing about Irish writers. It is the different thing about Irish writers. That's a great advance, I think. I think you're right. And, uh, and I've always been quite proud to be sistered by English, as it were. I mean, um, and and being a bit ashamed of that pride in this resource, because it was also the language pouring out of the people I adored, my great aunt, Annie, my two grandfathers. They're all very different Englishes, actually. But it was the temp, it were, it, they were the integers of their, their secret soul. So, I mean, I knew that as a child, that that was the truth. Um, would you ever think, do you ever have a thought about, because I mean, you could say that Conrad writing at 30 in English for the first time, or when you go to see um, Moliere in the Comédie Française and somehow you understand the French because you understand the acting, you could say that it's all beyond language anyway, or there's only one human bird song. Do you ever have a thought about that? I mean, you're an incredibly apart from all your other qualities, you're a very sophisticated person, but do you ever think of, you know, we're only 200,000 years old as a creature, uh, which is a bit shocking. I, I keep, every time I say it, it shocks me to think that because you can't mark that on human time. What do, you, do you have any feeling about, I mean, even all those women, you know, the millions of years of slightly different creature that came before, and maybe we're also trying to use language both as, a joyous celebration of breathing in and out, but also survival. I think that we, the capacity for language is greater than we can accept and greater than we understand through the amount of vocabulary that we possess one way or another. And I find that often, you know, on my travels in the world, and I see it all around. I mean, I live in East London, which is, incredibly diverse piece mm. of um, part of the world and filled with lots of cultures and people who speak different languages and can you give a few cultures that you're living among yeah I mean here there are all manner of Asian cultures Muslim Hindu there are people who are come from the Windrush generation or people who are recently arrived uh, there are Africans, there are South America. I mean, it's, you know, and then also people from all over Eastern Europe and um, and Europe generally and lots of Russians. And, you know, it's just a really, it's a big mix of a place here. And and we're all hubbing along speaking English together, some as, nat as, as you know, first yeah. language and others acquiring it. And when I watch my daughter, for instance, interact with children who... Uh, English isn't a first language for that. That's when you see how well language works and how there are there's a kind of a secret other inside of language for those who are willing to listen. It's so important. And when I lived in Harleston a couple of years ago for six months, I gloried in all that, and I wanted to bus in 
racists, to walk them up and down the main street of Harleston, to show them this possibility, you know, uh, this proof, this, this definitive proof of their stupidity. And here, was, here were people, as you say, uh, in a kind of lingua franca of the soul, more or less, like buying fish with the ladies from originally from the Caribbean or whatever. Um, and are, do you have any, what I identified as sort of old Irish, like the, the shops in Halston were full of all the regional Irish newspapers, but you never saw the people who came to get them because I think some of them were too elderly to actually leave their houses. Do you have any lost generations there of Irish in East London? Well, this, I mean, interesting, this area that I'm, that I'm in now was apparently a very, very Irish oh. area um, and not really so much anymore. And I think it's, it's one of those areas where there's just a huge turnover of people that, you know, originally it was built for uh, clerks working in the city and it was considered to be quite far outside of London. And over time, those people became middle class and they moved out further and city crept in and now it became more of London. Then there was waves of Irish came in and then later uh, waves of people from the Caribbean and then later people from um, Bangladesh came in. And, it, you know, and over time, each of those generations, as they kind of settled and overcame the obstacles of, of being the new immigrant on the block and mm. became part of the community and, uh, you know, kind of expanded into the wider British culture and went up the social ladder. They then sold up and moved out, and the next generation came in. And yeah. and I and so you can see it where there are lots of much older Irish people here, but not a lot of um, people younger than me, and not a lot no. of people even my age in my you know in my forties. That actually are you talking moving. to them? Can you talk to them or? Um, well, you know, I don't really talk to anyone if I can help it, <laughs> but, but I notice, uh, for instance, there's a, a road on my way to my, my daughter's school every morning, which is uh -huh. filled with, um, plaster statues and Catholic mm. statues and someone with an Irish name clearly lives in that house and had died in the house and a big memorial was put outside in their garden and it was like, you know, being in a, shop and knock <laughs> and uh, you know and that's a kind of an old i that when i first came to london you know over 20 years ago that kind of irishness was still very very present that kind of quite uh conservative catholic people who stayed within the irish community even though they had moved over to this country and kind of didn't want to integrate too much and also probably weren't allowed to integrate too much um, but over time, those barriers broke down and people moved on and uh, being an immigrant in Ireland also became a different kind of immigrant and became, you know, started to mean something else. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see that representation of an Ireland that you don't even see that much in Ireland anymore. Well, you don't. And that's very, that's true. Actually, that's very moving in a way because I'm just thinking of my great, great aunt's room in well, the kitchen, I suppose, the, in her cottage, which only had two rooms, so it was the one she didn't sleep in. For that, um, yeah, a picture of Kennedy, maybe a picture of the Pope, although maybe she was hanging that up ironically. I don't know, um, but definitely the Sacred Heart, the light burning. She didn't have a child of Prague because you had to put that in your fan window, didn't you? So she didn't. Oh have, yeah, of course. Yeah, so she didn't have that. Um, but then everything about that, everything about that, uh, cooking on the open fire, um, the cricket in the hearth. I mean, once you lose the cricket in the hearth, everything else goes with it. Actually, cricket, as you may know, Emer have disappeared almost from the Irish evening, which is mm -hmm. very sad. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, you... Like me, I mean, I was, I was, um, my father and mother went over to London when I was four and left us there with my great aunt. So I had this wonderful life for a year and then had to rejoin those difficult people uh, in London. And then we came home when I was about 10. Now you've had a, some, something similar going on. I mean, do you, I mean, when I went to Norwich, where they mistakenly gave me a doctorate, 
um, I was so pleased to find the tombs of um, relig the guy who wrote Religio Medici and his wife, Sir Thomas Brown and his wife, strangely enough, separated uh, uh, on their memorials, which I thought was interesting. But I think they got on well. <laughs> and I was willing to say Norwich was my origin then. Mm. Or London. When I'm in London, I, I don't say it out loud to the policeman. But I do feel I'm from London, you know, and, and I'm also from Wicklow and I'm also from Mayo. And I'm also, I mean, uh, the calf returns to where it got the milk is the old saying. Where, where, where do you, what the calf in you returns where? Uh, what is your origin place? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's tricky for me because people always want to pin you down from exactly where you're I from. I don't want to pin you down. down. I, want to, I want to open it all up. <laughs> I suppose I feel in my in my heart of hearts, I've always felt like um, I'm a Londoner and I'm an Irish Londoner. And it's pretty important that I'm both of those things. And being a Londoner, you can be both of those things. And there, there is no conflict there. Um, it's like being a New Yorker. You can be from anywhere and and be a New Yorker. And I suppose when I was growing up, because I had been born in Liverpool and then grew up, you know, from two onwards in the west of Ireland you know I never really was from there and at that time things felt they were very tribal and my family were northern Irish so and nobody knew us in the west we were sort of blow-ins and so I never felt like that was my place I think maybe more in Castle Bar when I was in my teens because I sort of settled and had a circle of friends um and then, you know, I, I came to London at 17 and that felt like home. That just felt like this is the place where sure. uh, I can be anything that I want. And I, I felt that I brought my Irishness with me, though, in, in that and that it was never about not being Irish or rejecting Ireland, but feeling that, you know, it was just another component. And that and I suppose I've always felt very defensive about Irish people in the diaspora and there's always been a lot of conflict back in Ireland about oh should you be calling yourself an Irish writer and are you you know and I I, I don't think that there is any conflict but it is becomes a different type of being Irish I suppose over the years. Have you ever experienced I mean say in the mid-90s between the ceasefires were you in London then? I was yeah. Did you ever experience racism directed towards you oh yeah I mean I when I arrived first there was a lot of aggression and I you know remember you know what people year? shouting at me I bet you really glad that you bombed Manchester and whenever there would be a bomb scare there would always be a lot of really aggressive things about being Irish I once came out in my hallway someone had carved into the wall terrorist terrorist Irish whore um so I you know though there was a very frightening atmosphere I remember when I when I arrived there first someone telling me don't if you read the Irish Times don't ever read it on the tube um, so don't be a, don't be identified because you know unlike um, someone who's black or Asian in a you know being Irish you just had to shut your mouth and no one could tell um, so you could hide in plain sight but it that atmosphere was very very aggressive for a long time and it is now almost completely dissipated but I remember having temp jobs um, you know, after leaving drama school and having uh, jokes made about stupid Irish people and dirty Irish people, and you know, I mean, that it was yeah. a very, very unpleasant atmosphere. You were expected to be drunk. You were expected to drink whiskey and maybe be quite a good singer. Yeah, and always, always be up for the crack. And mm -hmm. in fairness, like you know, that is a stereotype which I've always, you know bonded myself quite closely but <laughs> I I do I am very aware of this idea of the performative Irish person that you are and that somehow it's allowed it's still allowed to make those kind of jokes oh the Irish are also funny they're also friendly and crazy and drunk and and they don't mind anything you can say anything to them and um mm -hmm. and that that kind of thing still exists you you think therefore that we would be the most um we would be the least racist of all the peoples of the earth. Yeah. Of course, the other side of that experience is, if you let it, it 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 makes you. Well, it seems to make some Irish people 
tragically racist. Um, that's always been another sorrow, more than the loss of a language, I have to say, that in South Boston, the most aggressive racism was from Irish people towards the black population in, in Boston. And, and, and indeed how we treat in general, when I say we, I mean settled people, the attitudes towards travelers in Ireland. But you're, 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 um, you, was your father a bank manager or why was he moving? No, no, he was a nurse. Oh my heavens. So both of my parents were nurses. My father was a psychiatric nurse. Wow. And so wow. they, yeah, so they came to England in the 60s to get away from the troubles. They had been working in the north and um, my father's Catholic colleague was sent a bullet in the post. Oh. And so they basically decided that they would go to England. And, um, but they always wanted to come back to Ireland. But at that time, obviously I had two older brothers as well. And they were um, in, they were sort of 10, 11 by the time we came back to, to Ireland. And they didn't want to go back to the North with boys mm. that were about to become teenagers. Mm. Um, so that's why we ended up in the West. So he got a, a job working in a psychiatric hospital in the West of Ireland. My mother used to like, my mother was from Sligo and she used to like to remind people that Sligo is 30 miles from Enniskillen. You know, it's, you're nearly <laughs> home, but you're not quite home. And maybe with good reason. Bunkrana uh, is, is a long way from there, but Bundoran is just across the border. Yeah. Um, but uh, you're, I don't mean, this almost sounds like you still can't ask this question, but is that a Catholic family then? Are your family Catholic? <laughs> yes. But, so, you know, but one generation back, my grandmother converted. From, and from, well, she was a Protestant. Pres Presbyterian or do you know? I think Presbyterian. Hmm. I think they were Presbyterians. But that side of the family I would never have known. Because, you know, the penal, the penal laws were much harsher on dissenters than it was on Catholics even. This is, yeah. this is um, and you, so your dad now, he's, is he my age? So he's, no, he's a bit older than me. Is that right? Or He would have been. He's, I mean, he's, he's dead now oh. and a long time dead, but yes, yeah. he would have been 75 this year. Right. So his, dad, his father then would have been probably, uh, he would have been obviously a young man during the Second World War. Am I correct here? And maybe your grandfather then would have been, your great-grandfather would have been in First World War generation. Is this right? My, yeah. So I know my mother's uh, grandfather fought in the First World War. And he, uh, again, he was a convert who converted to Catholicism to marry. And the marriage didn't work out. And then he reconverted back again. Um, but in the interim had gone to the First World War and served with complete indistinction and I think was guilty of all manner of going AWOL and drinking on duty and disappearing and abandoning his wife and abandoning his post and all kinds of disreputable behavior. Probably the um, right response to the First World War. I th uh, yeah, I mean, I, I find it hard to feel anything other than a sense of pride. Yeah, <laughs> he managed right. to get out of it alive. You're right. Um, and, and do you know, do you happen to know what regiment, I mean, was that remembered where, who he served with or? No, I mean, it wasn't because because the marriage had split up. I mm. think he was not much involved in his children's upbringing. And I think my mother would have remembered seeing him maybe once or twice as a child, but really they weren't involved. Um, although there was a story that he had won all kinds of medals in the First World War, which mm. later upon investigation was <laughs> <laughs> revealed to be the impact opposite of the truth. It just is useful, the opposite of the truth, I find. Yeah. Ordinary life. Um, so as regards, I mean, Northern Catholic family with that beautiful, in a way, movement, you know, of, of laughs at these divides, doesn't it, a little bit? And it moves between them. And that's rather a good part of the Irish story. And actually, it's quite common, really, in every family. But when you have the question of 1916, was there any family lore about that? I mean, what was, that was a really difficult position for a lot of Catholic families I mean, to that, negotiate that. I mean, that was, there was never, my, 
No, I mean, I, as, I've never heard any stories about people participating in anything, but I know, for instance, that my father's family, who were quite different, I mean, my mother's family is from Belfast and her father was a quantity surveyor and worked for the imperial government and so were, in a way, quite sort of middle class, although they had 14 children and all of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas my father's family was from Ballycastle. You know, they grew up in a, in a two-room cottage on the side of a mountain with no running water and no electricity. Mm-hmm. He left school at 14. Um, you know, he went to school in his bare feet, all of that kind of thing. But they were very strongly Republican. Mm. Um, but as far as any kind of... I've never heard any... If I imagine if there had been any stories, I would have heard them. So I think they'll yeah, it's odd that you have to di- you have to really dig sometimes, and it's it's when you think of all this effort that was made. Um, did were you did you have access to your grandparents? Did you know your? I knew my mother's parents, but my father's parents were both dead by the time he was sixteen. Mm. Um, they have had an importance for you. I mean, I mean, my feeling is that we do our best research between the ages of two and ten. Yeah. Before our grandparents can be our university, would, would you have had that sense of them? Were they important to you? Uh, they were important to me in that um, I think my mother was quite afraid of them, and they would just arrive because they lived in the north, and mm. well, we didn't have even have a phone when I was a child, so they would just suddenly arrive and stay for two weeks, and. Um, and they were quite, you know, my grandmother was, I would say, I never heard a good word out of her mouth about anyone or anything. I mean, she was a very angry woman who really sort of hated children, which because she had 14, I think that's probably fair enough. But she would basically come to the house and pray and we would all just pray. And I'm fonder of my grandfather, although he was a tyrant in the classic sense and certainly a model for the grandfather in um, in my first book yeah. where he would just kind of rant and rave about people having to learn certain prayers and behave in certain ways and then would get in his car and drive away and then would come back in the middle of the night and so there was always a lot of drama and shouting whenever That's he was in the house um, so, father, but, I, but I am also I was also kind of fond of him because he yeah. did have some fun in him as well and a lot of um imagination and he kind of spoiled me i suppose because we really had nothing at that point in my life and he was you know had a nice car and would come and buy sweets and go out and buy me paint and shoes which of course all the little girls had and i couldn't afford so i you know yes i was was one round with material goods what sweets would he bring you what did you prefer um, no he English. used to bring lollies and what he would do was when I would come home from school if he had arrived while I was at school I would come home and he would say go out the back there and I would go out the back and on on a bush there would be maybe like 10 lollies attached to the tree as though they had grown and the lollies would only grow on the tree when he would come to visit Jeez, that's so, wonderful which, which is you know, you know my mother would have said when she was a child they would never have he would never have behaved like that towards any of them. Most of them he would never have picked up or acknowledged, you know, that he was quite violent, that she would have seen him break chairs over her brother's backs when she was a child. And that he was, had been a very bad alcoholic and who Mm -hmm. stopped drinking, but became incredibly pious with it. Um, And so he, this was a completely different man to the man that she would have known when she was a girl. But there is a reason for that. I think in that, uh, genetically, or our DNA is closer, as you know, to our grandparents than to our parents. Mm. And and I think the the grandparenting role can be, especially if somebody stopped drinking, like my grandfather did, can be a great, um, you know, a redemptive time where you do start to notice. Because obviously, as writers, we know that the whole business of writing is really noticing first. And it, he knows your existence. And to go to the trouble of pinning the lollies on the tree is just, <laughs> is just uh, delicious in itself. Yeah. Um, good for him. Because the joy that gave him, you can imagine, must have been immense. It, it, it's, it's, um, it is true. I don't, I don't, also, I asked you what religion you were, and now I'm going to talk 
briefly about your writing, which also seems maybe not allowed in some strange way. <laughs> but um, I mean, it is true that, I mean, in my mind, the first two books are breaking down this English that we were given to, to bring it closer to how it actually exists in the brain, how language actually is in the mind. Or, or that's what it seems like to me. And then in your third book, in Strange Hotel, which, as you know, I, I really, really took to, um, because it is about aloneness rather than loneliness and, and the limits of language and how that, that the limits of language are much, the borders are much nearer than we thought or than we think. Like, do you soon get to the point where you can't express the greater subtlety? You know, it, it's, um, it's beyond one's reach. It's like a nationality we can't quite attain. Anyway, I'm, I would ask you, you know, usually I'd ask you this in private in a way or at a festival. Um, in breaking down and in somehow crushing you know, it's like the, those reconstituted artifacts where you break everything down and then you make something beautiful from that. Um, that, that seemed to be a necessity for you. I, I'm hesitating to ask you why, but I am sort of asking you why. I mean, I'm glad you, you felt you did that. But, um, and it was such a radical, obviously literally radical thing to do. Um, do you know why? you went at it that way? That's a better question, maybe. I think it's hard to say, actually. Yeah. I think there was lots of things. There, was an, I, there were lots of ideas about, you know, wanting to find a different kind of narrative perspective, but wanting to be able to kind of grasp the part of life that feels so influential, but so unutterable and so mm. kind of intangible mm. and and yeah yeah and I suppose it was also then the kind of the breaking down became about a sense of frustration with that with the limit of mm. how far you could go with how you know I always felt like the Germans had it so easy you know with their giant compound nouns they can just keep adding and adding and adding until they get the specific meaning but we can't do that in in english no. and it was I'm, I'm constantly imagining words and having to look them up to see if they exist because it feels like the, this is the right version of the word but does that actually exist in the language grammatically can it can it happen in that way and if it can't and I write it like that, will people understand what I mean? Does that kind of expand that little tiny space just a little bit more um, for a kind of a greater understanding of what the hell is going on inside? Um, and then I suppose when I got to Strange Hotel, I thought, well, it's maybe it's interesting to just live inside the box of language and mm, see. That's exactly what it is, yeah see the i'll just allow all the limits to be there and see if that what that's like to kind of live inside all of that the borrowed room the hired room of language as it were that we're actually asked to live in yeah and and it it felt odd to get to the end of that book and realize that actually you know because at first i thought oh, this will, this is going to be my easy book no one's going to complain that this is hard to read or mm. hard to understand or that it requires mm. concentration this is just going to be my kind of easy book mm. and when i got to the end i looked back and i thought bloody hell it's actually it, it requires more concentration than the other two books and that's writing in a completely grammatical way which yeah. should make meaning completely apparent and actually that's how hard language is. That's how hard it is to get past the boundary of language. That even when you use the rules the way you're supposed to, how difficult it is to communicate yeah. at a deep level. Well, you're probably too young to remember the old um, ad for fig rolls. Uh, but basically it was the same as a later ad for something else. The people who make them don't know how they make them. <laughs> and I often, I, I had a strange urge with, um, 
writing one of my books, Days Without End, to, in order to reach the character, I had more or less to smash up English, uh, which is a diff slightly different undertaking. And um, it felt very, it felt very much the, the spirit of childhood where, where you're, you've just let go and you're, you're just breaking things. And it's lovely. You know, I remember walking into my son, Marlon, well, I heard this noise in the distance and what he was doing, what he were, we were staying at a hotel and he was at the back of the hotel where all the wine bottles were. He was only about eight and he was throwing them up in the air just to watch them smash. <laughs> Which is a bit like Johnny Cash. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Mm. You know, that I was doing things to the language almost to the point of killing it. Um, and I'm wondering why we do that. But maybe we don't need to know why we do it. I mean, it, a lot of the podcasts I've done with people where I'm trying to find out what the hell it is we are doing, it's better not to know. And I remember uh, Sarah Baum sort of sitting back in her chair when I asked her a more direct question about it. And she obviously didn't even want to consider the possibility of knowing what she was doing, because then maybe you wouldn't be able to serve. You would, you know, you're, you would wreck your tennis serve of writing. It would, you'd just be thinking too much. Um, but, you know, because I am nearly 65 and um, as, since I was made laureate, I just wanted to, to look back over. The thing I admire most, I think, is the people who have, have taken something from the broken heartedness of being alive and has insisted on putting something in its place. Is there any sense of that for you, Imer? I mean, we all had traumatic childhoods, obviously, and um, it is quite traumatic, actually, just going up the street. But is there, are you, do you think there is a sense that you might be a kind of ambulance to your own uh, assault itself, as it were? Do you know that you're, you're the nurse? You're the nurse, like your father. <laughs> to, to this this business of being alive using your work? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really sort of against the notion of writing as catharsis, as personal catharsis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's what, you know, that the most awful word in the world, journaling, is about, right? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I, I think for me it is about um, finding a way to deal with chaos and of... And on a very basic level of knowing what I think, I often don't really know how I think about a subject or what I think or how I feel about it until I write about it and suddenly things begin to come into place. And so I suppose it's a way of, of kind of battling that feeling of, of chaos that comes with being alive, but also in the way that I choose to write it, is about accepting chaos as well, and of accepting that chaos is at the center and that existence can revolve around it. And actually in the, it's kind of the battling of the chaos without the acceptance of the chaos that people get most broken. And um, yeah, so I suppose it, it feels, and it's only kind of in recent years that I've started to understand that's what the point is for me um that there's just some something very practical but that there's also something yeah something of the survival instinct in there as well because it's not about being famous Seamus or, or what would you eminent emer no god well if it was i'd have given up long long before i ever got published <laughs> yeah but it, it's then that that undertaking is is moved into a more public sphere like they you're being noticed in your undertaking put it that way mm. um is that difficult for you do, do you i mean i don't read for the last 10 or 15 years i simply haven't read reviews because i i don't find i i, I revere some of the people who written about so and such and such but i'm afraid there's a sort of innocence in writing i mean maybe it's the innocence of to some degree of the assault you know the assailed i don't mean assaulted i mean the assailed individual but um do, do, 
Um, is there, I mean, for me, Conrad, for some reason, seems the closest creature of the, of the gone writers. And I suppose I identified with him in, to a stupid degree when I was a young writer. But do you have a secret instigator writer? Who is your mother writer or father writer? Or do you know, who, who are you in cahoots with? Is, is there somebody? Do you know, not really. Despite, uh, despite you, know, you know, openly acknowledging how important Joyce is to me and was to me starting out on the kind of the, on the road. Yes. I don't really feel like there's anyone in the room here. Yeah. And I don't really feel like what happens here is, is set out in a deliberate way to connect with those who came before or to connect with those around who are interested in the same things. And of course I am, there are writers who are interested in language and form who I am very interested in, both dead and living. Um, and I'm, I'm always interested when I'm sent a new book, if it is about that, that's going to entice mm -hmm. me to read it, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I kind of feel that really it's this kind of animal instinct alone in a room. Mm. And that later on, there's the, the dressing and the situating and the, the putting it in certain places and adding connections. Mm. And, you know, that's all the kind of the window dressing of being a writer. And, and as much as possible, you kind of have to leave that to the publisher as well. But um, which is probably why it took me so long to get published, because I was so bad at the window dressing part. But um no, I think it's also because you were doing something new. And the, 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 fu the funny thing about newness is its invisibility. Uh, I mean, obviously, Galileo didn't benefit much from noticing that the sun was <laughs> not the center, or the earth no. was the center of the universe, or the solar system. You know, they killed him for that. Um, I think it's something to do with that. It's, it's being true to what you've noticed. And I think it's a terrible seduction for writers to just notice what other people have already noticed mm. and then then you have a fight on your hands if, if you refuse that and i'm sure that's what it is um oddly enough um we sometimes i mean if middlemarch is the greatest novel in english um uh she george Eliot. um was instantly welcomed. It's very odd, you know, this whole idea of welcome. Uh, and, you know, you're doing something new. Nobody will help you with it for a long, long time. And then everyone will help you with it. <laughs> so what the hell is that? What's wrong yeah. with people, you might say? You know, I mean, a girl is a half-formed thing, really. She, she, with all her troubles and cascading, I don't know, falling stars around her. She really came in to the world, didn't she? I mean, that book. Yeah, and in a way that I could never have imagined. And um, yeah, and I think that it was a book that changed a lot of things, but I think it was also about you know, bad luck and good luck, that that it was written in a period where, you know, publishers were becoming more concerned about um, the internet and what that would mean and making commercial decisions rather than artistic or literary decisions um, and, and feeling like publishing was all gonna die anyway, so let's just make what we can. And, and sort of neglected the whole, kind of the soul of what it is to be a reader, which is to be an adventurer, to be someone who is willing to put an effort in. You know, a reader is different to a TV watcher. And, you know, and I'm both of those, but those things work in different ways inside you. Mm. And, you know, and, a, and, a, and so when the book came out, I think there were a lot of people, a lot of readers who were bored and frustrated with what they had been offered and what they had been told was the range of their interests. And not that everything that had been published before wasn't of value, but that, they have been, but actually there was some 
something else as well and that too could be of value and readers I think I was very lucky really kind of ran with that and took it on board and and of course some people absolutely hated it and just couldn't countenance it but that was also fine that was part of it I mean well, it's a very particular kind of book. We're the first generation almost of writers that has if the if required access to some degree to how readers are responding to work mm. with say a, a website like goodreads yeah where thousands of people will be rating their reading experience presumably <laughs> mostly in a in an honest way we we presume uh, and not necessarily in a deal breaking or deal making way it's mm. just there it's a thing yeah, uh, which I don't think any other writer has ever been aware of. I mean, does that mean anything to you? Do you? And we also have our festivals that we're, well, we don't have them now, but at the signing queue. What do you feel about the experience of the signing queue? I mean, I am an introverted person, but I can function, I think, fairly well in a signing queue because people are coming up to you and saying, making a declaration that they've prepared uh, as they waited. You know, there's, yeah. there's magic in that, maybe a resource, maybe a nurture in that. I mean, I, 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 I like signing you, the longer the better, obviously. Um, I, don't, um, I don't engage with things like Goodreads or mm. I don't read Amazon reviews or I just, I think people, readers are entitled to their opinions, but I don't necessarily have to hear what those opinions are. I my job is to to make the best piece of work that I can make, and I put it out there, and then people like it or they don't like it, and that's their business. That's not my business, and their opinion about it isn't going to change my opinion about it either, and it's not going to change how I write the next book or the one after that. That you know, and I think it's really important to protect that um, in your writing that the right to to not really care. I mean, it's of course it's lovely when people say nice things, mm. and it's infuriating when people seem to willfully misunderstand or mi misrepresent what you've written. Yes. Or just don't like it, which is also yeah. you know fair enough. But at the same time, what does it matter either way? What does it? It doesn't matter to you as the writer, and it shouldn't. If it does, then you're you know. If you if you allow it to affect what you're going to do, then then you're breaking your bargain with your well, reader. I think the worst effect I think, either praise or blame, is the derailing effect. It can actually knock a writer off the tracks for a while, and it's an awful yes. bother bringing up the ten cranes to get the goddamn engine back on the tracks. And yeah. that can be a delaying thing. But yes, I think you're absolutely right, and. Uh, the the other irony is that we are probably quite i mean in our, i mean i'm not saying you are but i i i regard myself in some ways as not quite fit for for life you know a sort of slightly vulnerable sort of a son of a bitch and and uh what i'm doing is is it's a high wire act in a way and the problem will arise if you slip on the wire or you and i think Praise, high praise can actually destabilize your little trip across the wire. And I mean, not that I'm asking for it to ever, you know, not to, <laughs> he said hastily. But I'll cope with it. <laughs> my feeling is that we are this creature, you know, um, there's a line in one of my plays, Interland, um, we're only an upright ape standing on our back legs trying to reach the higher apples. And you can't expect too much of such a creature. And there's also the aspect that you know, the robin with his perfected bird song out in the garden here doesn't really care. No, it doesn't in any way care what we're up to. You know, we, and we, will, we can as a creature be removed from this planet and the planet will only benefit from that. So the, there's all those things as well, you know. Um, so there's a sort of democratic lowliness to what we do. So, but that's probably right. And, and you know, we, we don't need to be talking about great writers and great writing. Maybe we, we can talk about true writing. Um, the sort of things that could get in your way, like they say in America, there are no famous second acts because 
people publish a great book and then they're 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 thrown off by what happens to them mm. um so it, it, i mean you're agreeing i think that some of our strategies especially as you go on and going on is the whole principle of writing are somehow to to be to be as aware of our of our vulnerabilities to all these things as to be celebrate you know rejoicing in them um anyway that wasn't even a question was it um no but i i, I do agree with you and i think you know the thing that's most important to hold on to as a writer is the fact that however vulnerable you may be or you may not be really deep in your heart there's a son of a bitch mm-hmm. and that's the person that you have to protect is the chip of ice and the bit that is really doesn't care and that is going to do its own thing because that's where it comes from and so all the kind of writing tips in the world and all the great reviews and all the terrible reviews none of those touch that thing and that's the Mm. thing that you have to go back to every time is the bit that you know will bite will always bite um there is a very surprising heating system that uses an icicle i mean i don't know how it works exactly there's a physics to it but yeah, that, that's how you get the heat in your house. You have an icicle in the center of the home <laughs> and you don't want that melting for some reason or you want yeah. it heat. Yeah. No, I, um, I was wanted to ask you, you know, Anne, Anne Enright, my predecessor, uh, she, she, she wrote a famous um, lecture about uh, just doing the numbers on um, women writers' experience of review space, and uh, it's a slightly ironic question since I don't think she's lacked for review space, and nor have you. Um, And I think all writers do feel a bit up against it anyway, whatever gender they might be. But it's been clear to me since I have two daughters, there is a there is a kind of a, a battle stations. I mean, do you feel you've had to gird your loins as a word? You've had to mobilize yourself against a certain amount of ridiculous blindness on the part of maleness or has that been yeah, I mean, I think certainly when my second novel, Les Bohemians, came out, there was a lot of very kind of childish carry on from a lot of male reviewers and none of which was reflected with female reviewers whether they liked the book or not Mm. they looked at it and they reviewed it for what it was and Mm. there was a lot of carry on about oh so much sex in the book and Mm. and and references and reviews to well you know whether I had thanked my mother in the uh acknowledgements or whether because the book was dedicated to my father it must mean that my mental health was all right and you know lots of weird carry on and and how shocking it was to be writing about sex and and that uh, sort of flabbergasted me and yeah. that reviewers could read the book and not really bother to engage with what the book was about but were clearly so challenged by a woman writing a book about a woman having sex and liking it and nothing terrible happening to her as a result of it. Mm. Um, so I think I ha- I do feel that there has been that and I do feel that in certain quarters, perhaps in the Irish press, there's an attitude which is a woman writer, do what you are told. Mm. And that if you don't do that, you get excluded. Mm. Um, and that's has been some of my experience, but I have seen it happen to other women as mm. well, and far worse ways than it has happened to me. Mm. Um, so I, I, and I, I think there's a lot of kind of a lot of male editors who take pleasure in trying to bait feminists by mm. treating women's concerns and women's books uh, in a very childish, infantilizing way, or mm. by getting reviewers who. You can't imagine what that person was asked to review for, what they brought, what mm. knowledge of the subject they brought to their review. Mm. Um, and I find, and I think often that is done willfully rather than accidentally. Of course, that can happen. You can, you know, an editor can pick the wrong reviewer any time. But I think that there is often, there has been 
particularly in the Irish press, a very pointed desire to needle and provoke women, to belittle them, to try and imply that their books have certain messages that they don't have, or try and blame them for certain social occurrences or movements. And um, yeah, I I think there is, you know, there's a a real misrepresentation of a lot of women's concerns that happens. And And women writers get the, the nub of that. Do you, does that bother you? Does that trouble you in your private mind or is that sacrosanct? Is that where the eye skill, the eye skill is untouched? No, I mean, in my, in my kind of social self, I get very infuriated. My writer self is closed to that. Mm. That doesn't, is not involved with that. That will, that kind of, that engine feeds off itself and it will do its own thing and will not be affected by it. But I, but in, then in in the window dressing later in the interviews and uh, at the festivals and things like that, that becomes part of the thing that you have to talk about. And again, you know, Anne Enright spoke very well about this, that, you know, women have to spend so much time talking about misogyny and sexism when we didn't cause it. Why do we have to waste so much time trying to fix it? Mm. And that's, Mm. you know, and, and male writers don't have to do that. And um, do you do you therefore? I mean, it's a complicated issue. Other writers, you know. I mean, there is a part of me, even teaching last year at UCD or whatever. Um, you know, I would poison all your soup at a, if I had the chance <laughs> to kill you all off. But but leaving that aside, because uh, you don't really only want there to be one writer in the world. Why should there be other ones? You know, you're supplying. <laughs> Who needs another writer? Exactly. But nevertheless. Um, as laureate, I have been obliged, you know, almost to, I, I have been, my mind has been brought to change on that, you might say, because in engaging with your work, say, just as an innocent human being, God, is there such a thing? Hmm. Um, something happens to me that is probably, um, I mean, I think I mean medicinal in the sense of Native American medicine, where you 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 brought into battle, usually in a buffalo scrotum, but you know certain objects you bring into battle in order for you not to die in battle. And I get that from you. And uh, um, also Danielle McLaughlin, um, I don't know what she has that is so rescuing, but it's or life saving or life preserving. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then, you know, Nicole Flattery, uh, and there's, Irish writing seems to, you know, I, I'm prepared for the fact that Irish writing in this time exists mostly in a gender that I don't, I'm not privileged to enjoy as it were. So what does that mean to you? I mean, do you feel you're the, I, I'm not quite sure. You mean I think you might be in your late thirties, but these forties. Some, some of these people are in their twenties. I mean, it's kind of glorious because I I want to celebrate it just as a critter, you know, rather than because I was in my twenties once. You were too, and it was hard, and nothing was happening. Yeah, I was writing book after book. It was nine years before I was published. It was really hard, and I was so penniless. I just look at. And of course, you know, Danielle McLaughlin is probably one of our, of our greatest writers, but she couldn't be earning three halfpence from it. And most people don't. And yet there they are. The, what is that? Do you feel um, part of that or do you feel you celebrate it or do you want to poison their soup or what, what do you feel about it? Well, I do want to poison their soup, of course. <laughs> I mean, I don't think a writer alive exists without kind of suffering the pangs of jealousy at the success of others. <laughs> and even people that you like and admire, it's what? very hard what? to what? suffer their, like their tremendous success and, and not feel well, that somehow you are being belittled <laughs> by their success. But, but, you know, the kind of the less childish part of myself, the bit that likes the world to change, and and enjoys being having enjoyed being part of changing a little bit little bit of the literary landscape myself 
enjoys watching yes. it being changed around me as well and i and that is as it should be and i think it's a great kind of repost to all the oh the novel is dead business mm. that the novel is one that there are so many voices that have been silent or mm. been sidelined in the literary world for so many generations now mm. coming out it just says to me of course the novel isn't dead Look at all of these things that we have yet to learn and mm. all of the things that these new people, young women and people from different ethnic backgrounds and races and, you know, this is all of these stories. The novel will have to change and grow to work out how to tell these stories in new ways. And, you know, and just like I had to change, change the novel for me a little bit to tell the thing that I wanted to tell. Everyone else will do that too. And sometimes it will be in very dramatic, obvious ways. Other times it will be in small ways. And, and sometimes just by adding a new voice, the literary landscape has changed. Isn't it curious, Emer, now that I'm thinking about it, that um, just as if you're you know, from North London, you're probably going to be a boxer. You know, you, the greatest boxers will come from the most deprived areas or whatever, or some of the great Irish boxers happen to be traveling travelers or... Uh, Pavi, you know, when you think, when you look back at the literary history, when it's been a woman coming through, it's, they're always doing the best. I mean, if you, if you think of um, George Eliot and Virginia Woolf, uh, the Brontes in their 20s, uh, Mariah Edgeworth, you know, Mariah Edgeworth in her time, if this means anything, was second only to Walter Scott for the amount of money she was given. One, she was given 19,000 quid for one of her books. Wow. Uh, you know, which is like half a million or something. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, that, that's, where it's, that's where it is. You know, we can only, we really are the, the catchers up, I mean, male writers. Um, I, that's not an untrue v version of history, of literary history, is it? No, I mean, I think I think the problem is that uh, the sort of great women writers of the past are standing there on their own, rather than at the top of a of a of a pyramid in which you can then see Absolutely. the second tier of women writers and the third and the one, all the ones below, because there was only room. There was only room for the best, and I think we'll know that things have really changed when there's lots of space for literary historian to look back and go well th there was this minor female writer you know i was reading up about um the brinsley sheridans this morning i was quite i was kind of hmm. having a little look at that history and richard brinsley sheridan is obviously sort of the great playwright irish playwright hmm. and and yet his mother was a writer and his sister was a writer hmm. and and his wife was a i think a performer and and when you look up wikipedia there's mm -hmm. a vast swathe of information about Richard Brinsley Sheridan. Mm. And there's maybe a line about mm -hmm. his sister. And when you go to find where you can read her work, it's quite hard to find that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem is that women who, one who may have been first rate, didn't get, didn't get through the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. and, and two, that the, they, they weren't allowed to create a culture around in a way that kind of second tier male writers were always buzzing around and part of the culture and informed things even if they weren't kind of at the head of things and and women were exiled from that and so you know women have to stand on their own have always had to stand on their own which i think is so great about what's happening in ireland at the moment is that there are just lots there's lots and lots uh, uh, and and you know not second tier and not second more. tier but also that it's creating a, a noisy culture that yeah. cannot be ignored that becomes the main culture not just oh and and here's women writers here's all the fellas doing their the irish men doing the great irish men stuff and then there's a couple of women over there no there's like roomfuls of women and they and that culture yeah. is changing well, culture. it's like wimbledon turned on it's you know it's not it's not mixed doubles or you know the women are great too the main everyone's watching the women playing mm. the literary tennis as it were I, I mean i've noticed that because um, when I was young, um 
there were only two or three writers anyway of any gender. You know, it was so sparse. It was so thin. It was a desert. You know, it's like a desert. You had yeah. three or four writers. Now there's many, many. And I'd love to know why in a way, but uh, at the same time, I, I just celebrate that fact, especially as laureate. And um, Ymir, I just want to be sincerely thanking you for this. We've come to the end of it, but um, do you know when you were a kid and somebody you really admired was nice to you? Uh, and I'm thanking you for that today because um, I'm, I, I really admire you to distraction and uh, it's rather lovely that you've taken me seriously at least for an hour <laughs> and, and and thank you thank you thank you Emer McBride my pleasure thank you <laughs> <laughs>